The following presentation is a Barrett Sports Media production. He's connected. Jason Barrett says, I'd like to see you here. The answer is when, where, what do you need? Respected. He's got a long and distinguished career in the sports radio business. Truly one of the titans of our industry. And unequivocally invested. This is the place to be if you're in the sports business. He is Jason Barrett. And this is the Jason Barrett Podcast. Now bringing you in-depth conversations with the best and brightest in sports media. And shedding light on the industry's biggest opportunities and challenges. Here's the the president of Barrett Media, Jason Barrett. Nice to have you aboard for the Jason Barrett podcast. If you haven't figured it out by now, I am Jason Barrett. There's been a lot happening over the past week in the world of sports media. News broke out of Boston that WEEI is making some changes to its lineup. Angelo Cataldi and Mike Missinelli reunited for a conversation on the air in Philadelphia. Dan Dockich exited the fan in Indianapolis. And the entire business was saddened and heartbroken on Friday night when news began to trickle out onto social media that renowned American soccer journalist Grant Wall had collapsed and died at the World Cup. First, my condolences go out to his friends and his family. I didn't know Grant and I wouldn't call myself a big soccer follower or fan, but when the cup was happening or something big took place in the sport, he's where I turned to for information. Given what's been out there in the press, I know there's more details that still need to be learned, and I'm hopeful that there isn't anything foul about his passing because you don't want anyone in the media to feel as if they're in danger if they go to another country to cover an event. But if there is... It's going to have a lot of people pounding their keyboards, demanding retribution. We'll just have to wait and see what gets uncovered in the days and weeks ahead. Now, on today's program, I'm excited to have Matthew Berry on the podcast. Many of you know Matt for the many years that he spent on ESPN. You're likely aware that he's moved over to NBC and is now a big part of the Football Night in America crew. He's responsible for bringing fantasy sports into the mainstream, probably more so than anyone else. I wanted to dive into that space with him, examine some of the career twists and turns he's gone through. Plus, I wanted to ask him about the emergence of his new digital platform, Fantasy Life. I've been following some of their social content, and they do a great job highlighting their growth, their people, and their content. It's worth checking out if you haven't done so before. Now, before I move ahead, a quick plug. If you follow News Talk Radio or any of the personalities involved in that format, our second brand, Barrett News Media, has released its top 20 for the News Talk format this week. We had 44 radio industry programmers and executives participate in the voting process. You can find all the details on BarrettNewsMedia.com. All right, plug time's over. Let's get into this week's What I've Seen or Heard. Attention! Attention! Have I got your attention now? Over the weekend, I had a chance to listen to Colin Cowherd's conversation with iHeartMedia CEO Bob Pittman on Pittman's podcast, Math & Magic. If you haven't listened to it and you care about the art of broadcasting, make time to do so. It's worth it. If you've followed Colin's career... You know he's well-spoken, entertaining, opinionated, the king of analogies, all the classic broadcasting buzz terms that people like to use to describe successful personalities, which is probably why he's done well on the national stage. But one thing that Colin does that others don't do enough is he doesn't waste time on the air. I want you to take a listen to what he said about his approach when talking at Pittman. I've always believed that I have to take the audience somewhere. I get nine to 11 minutes of you in a car. I'm not going to ramble. I respect you and I want to earn your respect. I want to take you somewhere you haven't been on a trip, on a journey, through a story. So when it's over and you get out of your car, it's almost like a column. Lead, meet, wrap it up at the end. And I feel there's too much rambling in radio and not enough true storytelling with a beginning, a middle, and an end. It closes. Take people somewhere. Give them something. Make them laugh. Make them think. Make them cry. Make them sometimes angry. Make them question themselves. Take them somewhere. 
I listen to hours of sports radio every week. And what Colin just said there is dead on. There is a lot of wasted time on talk shows. The clients I work with have heard me say this many times. Maximize your minutes. Don't waste them. Hosts too often look at their shows like a movie rather than living in each segment. But someone tuning in at 8 a.m. doesn't care what you did at 6 or 6.30. Just because you already talked about it doesn't mean that it's not relevant now. The audience is here, and they want your best stuff on the stories that matter most. It's even more noticeable when you listen to the start of a segment. A host doesn't think about the experience from the listener's point of view, where they just sat through five minutes of your commercials, a traffic report, maybe a sports update, a liner for your show, and then a piece of production that takes another 15 to 30 seconds before getting back to the lead voice. And then after seven or eight minutes are gone, what happens? We spend the first two to three minutes in a segment dipping our toe in the water rather than diving in and swimming. The blocking and tackling on sports radio should be outstanding, but I hear a ton of it that isn't. If your audience is with you for one to two segments, maybe even three, don't give them a reason to regret investing their time in your show. I know it sounds simple, but doing it requires consistent focus. The other part of Cowherd's chat with Pittman that I want to spend a minute or two on is his insight on where managers and talent go wrong. Take a listen to this. Don't think you're smarter than the public. If the public likes Diet Coke, give them Diet Coke. I think sometimes managers try to outthink the room and outclever the room. The audience tells you what they like. Listen. They like football, Labor Day to February 2nd. If you're not talking at 75% of the time, you're doing your audience a disservice and your advertisers, your partners. Play the hits, respect your audience, understand what topics resonate. Don't outthink the room. I'm sure you're sitting there thinking, well, that makes sense. Or you're saying, what does Colin know? He's doing a national show. I'm doing a local one. It's much different. Actually, it's not. Hosts like to do what's interesting and important to them, but not necessarily what the listener values. They'll come up with every reason why something does or doesn't work because if they're wrong, it means they don't get their way. And as a creative person, you want to have the room to do what you enjoy most. I get that. But if you looked at this through the lens of a business owner, you'd have a much different point of view. For example, if you owned a car dealership and people kept coming in to buy Chevys, but you didn't like Chevys, you preferred Fords, would you spend your time trying to sell them the car they didn't want Or would you direct them to what they're looking for? If you owned a restaurant and people kept asking for steak, are you going to try to serve them Italian, Chinese, or Mexican? If the goal is to keep the customer happy and grow your business, you're going to deliver them the best steak possible. It's not much different with a radio show. The issue is that a lot of people rely too much on Nielsen numbers and don't do enough actual research on what real people do and don't want. First, if you're going to go by the Nielsen data, look at the TV side too. What are people watching each week in your market? If football owns nine of the 10 top rated shows, give them what you know they enjoy. Secondly, look at your website, your podcasts, your video views. Find out what they're watching, reading, and listening to that you create. If every time you talk about the NBA or Major League Baseball, it results in 50% less interest, people are telling you they don't want it. Maybe there are stories that will make sense moving forward to invest your time in from those sports, but rather than trying to beat people over the head with it and convince them that you know your stuff, understand that they like other things you do better, and you're going to be in a much better spot to succeed if you focus on those things. Last, research your brand and your shows. In a perfect world, your company works with a researching firm to better understand the local audience. If you don't have that luxury, simple things can be done. You can create online surveys, involve people through social media, or go the old, or go the old traditional route by creating a setup to connect with folks at live events. 
Maybe it isn't as in-depth as what you'd get with a research company, but I'll take input from real people about my brand over the alternative and not knowing what they like. To wrap it up, don't waste the listener's time with nonsense. Give them the beginning, middle, and end, and take them somewhere. And don't ignore feedback. Make time to consistently understand what your audience values from your show. The more informed you are, the more successful you'll be. Well done, sir. I welcome feedback on this podcast and the opinions I share in our What I've Seen or Heard segment. So if you have something you'd like to ask, question, or even disagree with, hit me up on social media or shoot me an email, jbarrett at sportsradiopd.com. Now, though, it's time to set up this week's conversation, which takes place with NBC's Matthew Berry. The longtime fantasy sports guru joined me for a lengthy chat about his career, the growth of fantasy sports, where he felt some of his prior comments about Chris Berman got taken out of context, and the rise of his new digital brand, Fantasy Life. The day that Matthew and I chatted, he was playing Hurt, which I appreciate. We've all been there where you're under the weather and not your best vocally, but you want to help out someone who asked for your time, so... I greatly appreciate Matt pushing through to be on this week's program, and I think you're going to enjoy what he has to share. Yo, listen! Before I get into all your professional stuff, Matt, I've got to just get some insight here into your background. So I read Denver, Colorado is where you're born, yet your sports interests, Angels, Lakers, Washington football team commanders now, right? Texas A&M, how does a guy from Colorado wind up with all these splintered interests? Yeah, it's a weird one. But, you know, in essence, basically, I only lived in Colorado for six months. I was born in Denver, Rose Hospital, shout out to them. But, uh, you know, when I was my when I was very young, my parents moved to Virginia. And so I lived in Virginia growing up. And that's, you know, I'm of the age that when I was growing up, that was the Joe Gibbs era. That was the, you know, from the time I was probably 10 till the time I was, you know, out of college was sort of the Joe Gibbs era where they where you know, they, they were always competitive. They won three Super Bowls. They went to four. Um, so, you know, that's the team, my childhood, that's the team that I, that I love and support. So there's that. When I was 12 years old, my parents moved from Virginia to college station, Texas. They live there to this day. My dad is still to this day, a professor at Texas A&M university Okay. So from from 12 on, so my first sports love is Washington, the commanders, uh, if you will. But from 12 on, you know, I grew up in, in College Station. And yep. so every Saturday I was at Kyle Field rooting on the Aggies. It's my dad's team. So I like Texas A&M. I went to school at Syracuse. So that's my college. So those are the two schools I root for. But it was a tough year football-wise for, uh, <laughs> for me. After college, I moved out to L.A. where I spent 15 years. And so uh, the first thing I did when I got to L.A. was I got together with a bunch of buddies and we all split Lakers season tickets. This was back in the day where they were playing at the Forum pre-Shaq. Yep. Kobe was an 18-year-old rookie. They weren't very good. And then just as they got good for whatever, 15 years I was in L.A., I went to 10, 20 games a year. Shaq comes in and Kobe becomes Kobe and Phil Jackson joins the team and Obviously, it was a great run there. So I'm a Lakers fan there. And then I got my start. I moved out to Hollywood to become a writer, to be a screenwriter for yeah. TV and movies. But sports was always my passion. When I was starting my fantasy football career and I started my blog, I got a job at 710 ESPN. Steve Mason was a reader of my column back in the day and wanted to do a fantasy football segment. So he he brought me onto his show, went well. Five minutes turned to 10, turned to an hour, turned to guest hosting. They were the official angel station. And uh, the guys that did the the play-by-play would also do the post-game. And so, uh, but two days a week would be getaway day. They would fly with a team on the plane. And they can't take calls for two hours after the game. So I became the fill-in for about two years. I became the fill-in host on Angels Talk. And we did, in addition to the you know, twice a week post game when the normal guys couldn't be there. Um, I was doing some shoulder programming, like, you know, breakfast with the angels, like a Sunday morning 
magazine style show and some interviews and stuff like that. So Jason, for two years, I needed to know everything about the angels. <laughs> That's my team. You know, when you were, you mentioned Steve Mason in the uh, Mason Ireland uh, connection there, when you were at ESPN LA at that time, who was the program director? Was that Larry Gifford or was there was someone different? That was the the late, great Ray Calusa. Oh, that's right. Yeah, Ray Calusa. That's right. I forgot. R.I.P. Yeah. So, look, that's kind of cool. Mason gives you uh, an opportunity to get going. At that time, I'm guessing you're doing the talented Mr. Roto, your fantasy blog, which took off and became a big deal. Um, I'm curious. That's where I want to start is, you know, where did that get born and come from? Because as you mentioned, you were – trying to make it writing TV shows and you were coming out of Syracuse trying to build a career. And then obviously the pivot into sports media has got to come from somewhere and fantasy kind of had to be that passion of yours that you were able to scratch through getting some media exposure. But how did, how did it take off? How did it get started? You know, it's so funny. I'll speak to college kids or I get advice. I'm like, people want, how do I become you? How do I get your job? And I'm like, the way you get my job is not the way I did it because my path was very circuitous uh, and uh, really windy and, you know, a lot of right place, right time uh, kind of situations. So the short version of the story is I've been playing for- fantasy sports since I was 14 years old. Obviously, you know, I'm in, uh, I'm in my fifties now I'm 52. And so uh, quite some time that I've been playing fantasy sports. This is pretty internet. You had to keep stats by hand. Uh, when I got into, um, when I went to college, the idea that you could make a living talking about fantasy football, any fantasy sports was, you know, pie in the sky stuff. So fast forward to uh, LA, I'm living out in Hollywood, become a sitcom and movie writer. Takes me a couple of years, but I break through. I'm, and in 1999, Roto World was like, hey, we're at, we're looking for writers. We need writers. And so I said, uh, I read them a note. And I said, listen, I'm a, I'm a professional screenwriter living out in Hollywood, but fantasy sports is my passion. Boy, I think it'd be so much fun just to do a column on the side. And they wrote me back the next day and they said, we looked you up on IMDb. Married with children is our favorite show of all time. You're hired. <laughs> so because I wrote, you know, um, shoe store jokes for Al Bundy. Uh, I got a chance to write a free column for a low traffic internet website about fake football. <laughs> and, uh, and I was writing, you know, baseball, fantasy baseball, fantasy basketball as well. So I was trying to come up with a nickname that made me sound like an expert, but not one that took himself too seriously because yep. that's my perso- personality. Ah, uh, you know, Dr. Roto, Mr. Roto, the Roto whore, like all these awful <laughs> names, awful, terrible, brutal names. My uh, now ex-wife, but at the time, my 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 wife, we had just seen The Talented Mr. Ripley, the Matt Damon movie. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to think of all these names for my column. And she said, what about The Talented Mr. Roto? And I'm like, sold. There it Hilarious. is. Over the top. Sounds, makes you sound like an expert, but clearly one that doesn't take himself too seriously. It's so over the top. I don't think I'm particularly, particularly good at many things, but... I think I'm a pretty good writer, and uh, I developed a pretty big fan base. After a little while, I was their number one columnist. So as a result, in 2004, people were starting to make money on the Internet. People were starting to do blogs. And I thought I developed a big enough fan base that I could leave Roto World and that some people would follow me mm-hmm. and that uh, I might be able to make a few bucks on the side. I think at the time at Roto World, I was making 50 bucks a column. So I did that. Uh, this is pre-MySpace, pre-Facebook, any kind of social media. I didn't have enough budget to go out and buy advertising. Mm-hmm. I knew nothing about SEO or anything like that. I was complete moron about how the internet worked. I realized the only way that I could promote my website was me. So I went to every TV station, radio station, or website I could find, starting obviously with 710 ESPN, and said, I will come on your air for free. I will write for you for free. Just mention my website. Just link back to my website. And obviously, you know, um, starting at 710 ESPN, that was an entree into ESPN. Yeah. 
And I mean, that's the fascinating thing. You look at where you are now and everything that has changed and the way fantasy sports has blossomed and really exploded over the last two plus decades. I'm I'm curious. I know I I listened to you when you were on with uh, Ethan Strauss on the House of Strauss podcast, and you talked about the early days and you mentioned how you and Berman get along great, but in the early days, he wasn't, you know, embracing of it. I'm sure you went through that with a couple others. And now you look at it, it's very mainstream. How, what were those early days at ESPN? Because I was at ESPN, I think it was 2004 to 06. And this is when they started the Fantasy Focus yeah. podcast and everybody would just, hey, we can put it on the website, but we can't put it on the air. And it was, wasn't treated the way it is now where you've built a, obviously a national brand and a mainstream following. So what were those early days and how how hard was it getting people to buy in that this could be a great form of entertainment on mainstream television? First off, if I can, um, if I can just say this, you know, I, I'm a big fan of Ethan. I think he does a great job. I enjoyed that podcast. I was disappointed, Jason, if I may, in some of the coverage of that podcast, I felt like some sites took my words out of context. They certainly used it for some clickbaity headlines. I thought the articles around the appearance were accurate and fair, but the headlines were sort of clickbaity because, as you mentioned, I took great pains in that podcast, great pains mm-hmm. to say, I love Chris Berman. Yeah. Consider him a friend, love him, bit of a mentor. Uh, you know, he helped me out sort of navigating ESPN. You know, if I ever went to him for advice, he was he would give it freely. He was encouraging. So I have nothing but but true love for Chris Berman. And the headlines that came out of that made it seem like it was negative. Right. To be clear, many people at ESPN, not all of them, we're not sure how fantasy football will work on any platform that isn't the internet. Yeah. Chris Berman just happens to be the most famous of all of them. Look, your but- point is dead on. Like, you know, I mentioned I was at the radio. I produced Dan Patrick back in 2005. Mike and Mike, you know, they would dabble here or there. DP would go, oh, are we going to do this fantasy stuff? And, it, you know, at that time, you can understand some of the reservations. It hadn't become accepted the way it is now. Now you look at what it is and you go, yeah, of course you'd find ways for it. So I, I got your point when you were talking about it. It's like, look, a lot of people in the mainstream media are trying to figure out at that time, do we have the next big thing? Or are we putting too much time into something that's niche that's not going to become it's going to become that deterrent in the program to watch. Yeah, I know exactly. I mean, like, and candidly, I don't know that we've ever nailed it. You know, like you see segments on SportsCenter, you see various integrations into TV shows. I think some are better than others. Mm-hmm. But I don't know that we've fully 100% nailed how to integrate fantasy into all the sports coverage. I just want to say that. I'm not calling out any specific, you know, blog or website. But I was just, I was disappointed, Jason, in that. And I just... I just want to take take a moment to say that, you know, yeah. and, you know, and I called Chris personally and Chris is so gracious. He's like, no, no, you know, we're good. Uh, but it just, it bothered me because I truly care about the man. So what I will say is about the early days of ESPN is that it was a lot of education. Hey, this is what fantasy football is. This is why it's important to our audience. This is how many people play. This is the monetary opportunity for us as a business. This is how we can increase revenue. This is how we can increase users. This is what we offer that's good. This is what we offer that could use some more. Mm-hmm. Here's here's some areas of opportunity for us. And uh, that was me for the first two years going to every sports center producer, Baseball Tonight, NFL Live, magazine editor, ESPN Radio, you name it. I would just have meeting after meeting after meeting. What are you trying to accomplish with your department? What are some goals that are you trying to get to in the next year? And then I would hear that and say like, okay, here's where I think fantasy can help you because the people that play fantasy sports are the avids of the avids of the avids of the hardcore. That was my first two years at ESPN was trying to educate them about here's the opportunity we have in fantasy sports because at the time ESPN was truly the worldwide leader in sports, not only on TV, but digital and everywhere. But they were third in fantasy. I just said, like, that makes no sense. ESPN is number one across the board everywhere else. Why should we be number three in third fantasy? I had some support internally as well. John Skipper was supportive. 
John Kozner was supportive. John Walsh was supportive. All the Johns were. And it's not to say the people that I'm not mentioning were not supportive. I want to go out of my way to say that. It's just like, who was sort of leading the charge? It was the people that were either digital or digitally minded because that was their P&L and it made sense. So let's go back in time. When you look back now and you think about some of the performance of fantasy and how active users were, and you look at the way that the traffic and all that interest has changed by the year 2022, like when you got into ESPN and you looked at the metrics that I'm sure you were looking at when you cited, you know, the network being third in fantasy, and then you look at where it was when you left the network, what was that difference in, in interest? How did, how did it look essentially in terms of traffic, interest on TV, interest on audio, all those things? I mean, massive, right? I mean, like, you know, like I'm really proud of, um, you know, I don't want to brag, but I'm really proud of what we built at ESPN. When I, when I got there in 07, we were third. When I left, it was number one and number one by a mile. And, you know, that's not to say it's all me. There were a lot of people behind the scenes that worked very hard. There were a lot of people in front of the camera as well that worked very hard. You know, we, when I got there, honestly, as recently as last year, Sometimes it would be a struggle for me to get on, for me to get on Sports Center. I don't think I've been on NFL Live. Obviously not this year because I no longer work there, but I don't think I'd been on NFL Live for like three years prior to me leaving. Now you're seeing, you know, more and more, you're seeing fantasy content integrated into Sports Center. Um, you know, there's, listen, when I started there in 07, they didn't have a show. Now there's a three hour show on ESPN2 and it does well. They didn't have a podcast when I got there. Fantasy Focus when we, when I left number one podcast in, in fantasy sports. And it's still, you know, among the leaders. Interest level is massive. Just in 07, I think people thought it was really nerd, nerdy and niche. And now I think people realize that it is not something that is nerd or niche. It's something that everyone does. Yeah. Rock stars play, celebrities play, grandmas play, kids play, everyone plays. Um, and I think advertisers have clued into the fact that, again, Fantasy sports players are more brand aware. They're more loyal. Uh, they're more brand loyal. They're early adopters. They are, they are, uh, more affluent than the just general sports fan. They're more educated and, uh, they're generally younger as well. The people at ESPN are smart people. And when they saw that, when, you know, when they were educated on that, you know, they, they adjusted to say like, okay, this is great. Let's do more of it. Everything you just said there was dead on. I think early on, like I was an early adapter. I love fantasy sports. I got right into it as it started to pick up your assessment of affluent people. Like, you know, I'm not, I'm not like hurting to pay the bills. It's, it's a big part of my normal sports fandom. Right. Um, on the other hand, like you mentioned how it took a little bit of time for it to become a bigger conversation on TV and get the support to get to the level it is now. Yet we see this rush with sports betting and it's obviously all driven because of the revenue. The flip side of that is you could argue pretty easily that more people are going to play fantasy sports than they are going to gamble. And yet, you know, obviously maybe the budgets won't be the same, which is why it's going to be pushed on TV differently. I'm just curious, like from your vantage point, do you see those two complementing each other fantasy and betting, or do you see them kind of separate? So I do think they're complementary, right? Especially as player props become more, you know, popular. You know, I, I, I think you'll see more and more, like my show that we do on NBC, both of my shows actually, Fantasy Football Pre-Game, Fantasy Football, which is Sunday mornings on Peacock and CNBC, and then the uh, the daily show Fantasy Football Happy Hour, which is Peacock and YouTube and SiriusXM and a zillion places you can get that show. We integrate fantasy and betting. We don't think there's much of a difference mm -hmm. in terms of, cause you're fantasy. What you're doing is you're analyzing how the game is going to go and what players you expect to do what. And when you get into player props of, of sports betting, it's the same thing. We think this is a low scoring game. So we don't love the players in this game for fantasy. And also, by the way, we might want to bet the under. All you're doing is you're saying, this is what I think is going to happen. And this is why I think it's going to happen without sports betting. I don't know if I'm at NBC. I don't know if I'm on Football Night in America. I mean, I do basically three segments on the show, and one of them is the Bet MGM breakdown. 
Yeah. I mean, look, and and in that case, it is a great thing that betting has become a bigger deal because it does draw greater attention to fantasy in that regard. I mean, fantasy is all about projecting and hoping you're right. So is betting. So they kind of what the difference is fantasy. You don't have to put a dollar on it and you're not going to get hurt if you don't, if you want to, you can, whereas gambling, you have to, but they definitely work hand in hand. I'm curious, you know, when we'll say, I will say, Jason, I will say from a broadcast perspective, I think, like I said, I think they're two sides of the same coin. Um, I think from a from a playing standpoint, I get asked that a lot. You know, one question when, when PASPA was overturned that I got asked a lot and I still get asked is, well, does sports gambling eat into fantasy? Are you worried about fantasy? And the answer is always no. The value proposition of sports betting versus the value proposition of fantasy sports, different. To sports betting, you know, there's some entertainment. I want some action on the game. You can do it solitary. But for fantasy football, you get together with your buddies or your coworkers, your family, you draft, you're giving each other grief, you're making waiver claims throughout the year, you're making lineup moves, you're, you're negotiating trades. There's a much bigger social aspect to fantasy football than there is sports betting. The value proposition of fantasy football is social in nature. Yeah. And sure, you know, maybe there's a, maybe everyone throws in an entry fee and there's money at the end, but generally speaking, you're playing fantasy football for the camaraderie, sports betting. You're playing for the the entertainment value and you know the chance to win some money. Well, when it comes to fantasy sports, Matt, I mean, right. obviously everybody loves the NFL. It's easiest to play because it's a once a week sport. But like when you you've been able to see what the appetite is around the country for different sports, what what do you see when you look at other sports? You know, from NBA, NHL. Baseball, what what's number two behind the NFL? Number three, number four, and it, and is there a great difference between them? I mean, there's a big drop off from fantasy football to everything else. Number two is NBA. Number three is MLB. It sort of depends, I suppose, on how you define fantasy. Daily fantasy has been a real boon to both uh, both golf and uh, fantasy baseball, NASCAR as well, MMA. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I mean it. It's it's football and everything else, but NBA is number two. When I talk to stations and I'll have these conversations with hosts, and it's easy to sell them on crafting content around fantasy and football season. It's when you get outside of the season and they're like, okay, how do I make this make sense on a talk show? Are there any things that you've seen or that you've done that you feel do work when we're not in football season that you think are a real hit? No, because I just don't think the audience is big enough for those two, for anything that isn't fantasy football. I think if you're interested in fantasy basketball or fantasy baseball or anything else, there are shows specific. There are podcasts, right. articles, web shows that you can go and watch. If I was in your job and I was consulting or advising, I mean, no one's a bigger proponent of fantasy than me. And even I'd be like, it's a niche of a niche. Mm-hmm. And with football, it's big enough. So many people play fantasy football. Over 50 million Americans play fantasy football that you're hitting a broad spectrum when you're talking about that. Makes sense. I mean, when you were making the jump from ESPN to NBC, um, I'm sure you had to take a lot into consideration. You know, but you mentioned one thing before. I hadn't even thought about how you hadn't been on NFL Live in three years. And so it, you can start to go under the hood and you go, well, listen, you have a pretty big profile right now with Football Night in America. It's a really big show. Uh, it, it was interesting when I saw CNBC – come on board with the pregame show. I've known that they've wanted to go down this route with a business type of show in pregame for a while. Cause I remember like four or five years ago, there was talk about doing a sports betting version of a pregame show on CNBC and the NFL wasn't there yet. Um, I mean, how big, you know, when you had to factor in, like you spent 15, 16 years at ESPN, that's a long time. And you built a really strong p- platform there. What was it ultimately that told you, okay, you know what? I like, I read your, it was a great quote about the entrepreneurial spirit and I can relate to that, but I'm sure you had to weigh a lot of these things and there were probably some sleepless nights where you're going, am I really going to walk away and go here? And if there, if I am going to do this, what is it that puts it over the top? So for you, what was that? Yeah. I mean, Jason, it's a great question. I mean, like, you know, as, as I told many people I've said publicly and privately, I leave ESPN with hugs and handshakes. I've, you know, nothing bad to say about the company. 
Uh, I had a great run there. I have still many friends there. I root for them. I'm not a bitter ESPN employee. I know there are those out there. I'm not one of them. But for me, I felt like um, it had been, while it had been a great run at ESPN, I felt like I'd sort of accomplished everything I was going to accomplish at ESPN. Mm-hmm. I knew that I was never going to be a part of NFL coverage, never in a significant way. It's just not how that company is built. Maybe it's not how they saw me. And, you know, the, the people that I reported to don't have the NFL coverage. Literally at the highest levels. Like, this is inside baseball. But, like, I reported all the way up into Norby Williamson. I mean, not directly. I reported to someone who reported to someone who reported to Norby. Mm-hmm. But the fact of the matter is, is that NFL coverage doesn't sit under Norby at ESPN. And so then it's just sort of like, how far can you take fantasy at ESPN beyond what we already have done? Like, you know, will, um, will there ever be a daily fantasy show on E1? Probably not. And so they're doing just fine. Uh, they do a really good job over there. But I just knew for me, it was important for me for two things. One is I wanted to be a part of NFL coverage. And as I had some conversations whether it was me or my agents, uh, knowing that, you know, there was a chance that I might be leaving ESPN. I felt pretty confident that if I did leave ESPN, there would be an opportunity for me to join an NFL pregame show. We had enough positive feedback and reaction from the community saying, you know, that uh, if we I was to be available, that is, that's the way they'd be very happy to use me. And then I also really wanted to be entrepreneurial. I have this startup, you know, this, you know, fantasy life, fantasy life.com, you know, and it's really growing. We have uh, hundreds of thousands on our email list. We have seven full-time employees now. We're cash flow positive and we're going to do over seven figures in revenue this year. Like it's a business that's really doing well. And um, I wanted to continue that. And, uh, you know, I had carved it out of my previous contract with ESPN. And ESPN said to me, you know, listen, we love you, Matthew, and we really like you. We want to continue working with you. But if, you know, in a new contract, sort of the landscape has changed and we want you to focus on just ESPN. And I didn't want to do that. I obviously, I work very hard for NBC. I work hard for whoever I'm employed by, but didn't want to give this up. So those were the two big things, Jason, was I wanted to be a part of NFL coverage and I wanted to continue my entrepreneurial you know, side of myself. I wanted to continue to try to build, keep building on fantasy life. And so when I met NBC, NBC said to me, listen, you know, we'll also make you a nice offer, but we'll put you on football night in America. You know, we'll put you on football night in America. And not only will we put you on football night in America, but we will make you a part of our coverage of everything we do. So, Not only am I doing fantasy and betting for Football Night in America, which is the number one pregame show in in sports, and it's the it's the second highest rated thing in all of television. Forget sports; it's the second highest rated show in all of television, second only to the game itself. So, like, not only will we make you a part of Football Night America, but we'll make you part of our Olympics coverage. We're going to make you part of the Indy 500, the Kentucky Derby, all of our tentpole events. And we think there's going to be other opportunities for you inside the NBC family. And you've already seen a couple of them. You know, I was on the Tonight Show. Yep. I think you'll see me. I think at some point you'll see me hopefully on the Today Show. I think at some point you'll see me on Late Night with Seth Myers. I think you'll see me again on the Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon. You're seeing me already on CNBC. I think you'll see some other iterations of that. NBC is so gracious and so wonderful. And they're just like, you know, we like you and here's everything we have and where else does this make sense? And then the other thing they said to me is, so not only will we put you on, you know, a bigger platform and all of our biggest platforms, you know, they pointed out to me, they said, look, Chris Collinsworth owns pro football focus. Mm-hmm. Mike, Mike Florio owns pro football talk. Jim Cramer owns his investment club. We are comfortable, our corporate setup, we are comfortable with talent owning uh, or having a, you know, an equity stake and ownership interest in an outside business. And if we can figure out a, you know, a deal that makes sense, we're happy to uh, not only let you do it, but to promote it and to, um, uh, to help contribute to it, you know, and, and help grow it, which is what you've seen NBC do with pro football focus, pro football talk and 
uh, and Jim Cramer's Investment Club. So, you know, I mean, I don't want to speak for NBC. That's not my place. But uh, the conversations we've had internally, at least from my point of view, around fantasy life have been really positive. They've been great. You know, you're always dangerous. You always don't want to say this because people take it out of context. And it makes it sound like I'm saying negative things about ESPN. And I am not. I'm taking great pains to specifically not take a shot at ESPN because I don't want to. Because I, I'm happy with ESPN. I, ESPN was incredibly gracious to me on the way out. They mm-hmm. gave me a last show. They, they said very nice things about me in the press release. But I'm incredibly grateful and happy at NBC. I'm curious, when you were going through your process, Mike Tirico made that jump from ESPN to NBC. You're now you know, part of the program with them. Uh, Maria Taylor made that jump. Did you reach out to either or anyone else to say, hey, listen, if I make this move, you know, what can I expect? Because, I mean, you had 15 years equity at, at a place, and that's a big job. Yeah, yeah and, you're, and you're forgetting Michael Smith as well. I uh, reached out a little bit. I, I didn't really know Maria when we were at ESPN. Obviously, I know her, know her well now. Um, and, uh, you know, I reached out. I had a couple of conversations, which was more about just NBC versus NBC versus ESPN. Because the timing of it all is that I knew there was interest from NBC. There was interest from a lot of places as well. I knew, you know, we'd had these conversations very casually, like, if I was available, would you be interested? Yes, we would be. My agents, you know, had some casual conversations, but it wasn't until I fully left ESPN and I was 100% a free agent that we started dialing down and saying, okay, I'm free, let's talk. You know, NBC was really aggressive in coming after me. I had a number of conversations with other places as well. I'm very flattered by the interest from um, other places. I had conversations with every single NFL rights holder. I had multiple conversations with multiple NFL stakeholders and so um but nbc was um really aggressive and so i talked to a couple of people at nbc um i talked to peter king and asked his advice what was it like what's it like at nbc what's it like leaving si where you were so known um you know for something and now you move over to nbc right you know he wrote monday morning quarterback for so many years yeah there and then moved to nbc so i thought peter who's been such a generous friend to me for so many years, would be a good person to talk to. And then I also called Jim Kramer. Jim's a friend of mine, big fantasy player. And so I wanted his perspective. And so I had totally separate but very similar conversations with him where they both said, man, it's great over here. It's great over here. Peter King said, you should absolutely come here and I'll tell you one reason why. They will not let you fail. NBC will put you in a position to succeed. And if whatever position they're putting you in isn't succeeding, they will keep working with you until they figure out how to make you succeed. Because NBC, and this was, by the way, said to me by executives when I was talking to them as well, they said something similar, which is, listen, NBC Sports isn't ESPN. NBC Sports is a small fiefdom within a larger NBC Universal corporate entity. ESPN has, you know, probably over a thousand talent, you know, front facing talent between all the sports they cover, all the channels they have. NBC Sports probably has less than a hundred. You know, their take was like, we can't just scatter shot it and hope we can't take six shots and hope, you know, three of them work out. If we take six shots, all six need to work. And then Jim Kramer said to me, he said, you know, it's the greatest thing in the world. I love being here. I've never been happier in my life. He goes, once a week, once every two weeks, he'll say, you know, I'll get a call from like my boss. I'll get a call from Jeff Shell. Hey, Jim, how you doing? Are you happy? What can we do to make your life better? He said, they care at NBC. And again, I'm not saying anyone doesn't care. I spoke with a couple of people that PAs, producers, I, some behind the scenes people um, at NBC that used to work at ESPN as well. And they all said the same thing. It's great, man. It's great. And uh, everything that Peter King and, and Jim Cramer said and my other friends, it has been true. I mean, you know, Sam Flood, the executive producer of NBC Sports, calls me once a week at least. Hey, I saw this hit. Give me some feedback. Hey, how you doing? Are you good? What do you need? How can we help you succeed? I've had three meetings with Pete Babakwa. Same thing. How are you doing here? What can we do to help you succeed? 
What do you need? That's the kind of support you want. I mean, if you're going to go somewhere, that's what you, you hope that they have your back. It's unbelievable. And my situation is not unique. I I don't want to speak for anyone else. I'll just say that, like, I would be shocked if you had a talent on this podcast from NBC Sports and they were telling the truth and they said anything different than me. I don't think she'll mind me saying this. Um, I, you know, because Maria Taylor, when she worked at ESPN, she worked on college, uh, college football and our NBA properties on fantasy football. So we never interacted. Yeah. And she was always on the road and I was always in Bristol. So I literally never met her. And when I met her at the Hall of Fame game, which is the first time, my very first day at NBC Sports, I, I walked up to introduce myself and I hold on my hand and she just hugged me. Um, she goes, you're going to love it here. And she was right. It sounds like you've, you've hit a home run <laughs> with the decision. I want to wrap up with one thing. And this has, you know, I knew when we were going to chat, everybody's going to be interested in the ESPN and the NBC stuff because obviously your professional career has been tied to those two. But I want to give you a plug here because you brought up fantasy life. It's the thing I'm most fascinated that you're doing. I watch what you guys are putting out from a social graphic standpoint, the way you're telling your story with, hey, 9 million newsletter deliveries, 18.8 million Twitter impressions. I love that stuff. Like as somebody who just is always looking for how do you make people care about a brand? Well, you have to have good content. Great. If I have good content, then how do I make sure that people know there's a snowball effect going on here? And what I what I love that you guys have been doing in the last couple of months that I've been following is not only telling your story in terms of impact with traffic, but you'll even do it when you hire new people. And and I just I've been really impressed with the social game of how you guys have been really working that. But here's the question I want to hit you with as we wrap up. Knowing how good a lot of this has been built for social, when all of a sudden the world of social changes, because I'm going through this right now, all of a sudden the algorithm changes, Elon might have a different vision. You go, wait, we've been building up this following and now I can't reach as many people. We can have the best strategy and the best graphics in the world, but what do I do if all of a sudden my users can't get my content? So how much knowing that you have to juggle everything you have in your world with NBC and making sure you're right for broadcast TV, how much of those conversations do you take part in and what what is all the uh, you know the success attributed to here with the growth of fantasy life? Because it's been a really, really cool uh, story the way you guys have been building it. Well, I appreciate that. You know, I give a lot of credit to my CEO, a guy named Elliot Christ. Uh, Elliot came to us from uh, FTN, which is another fantasy sports and betting website out there. Elliot's done a really great job. My big philosophy, Jason, is I try to hire really good people and get the hell out of their way. Our philosophy is just trying to be as many places as possible. So, yes, if Twitter suddenly changes its algorithm or somewhere else does, we have other avenues. So, you know, we literally have over 300,000 people that subscribe to the Fantasy Life newsletter. I think we're over 4 million visits for the month at FantasyLife.com. Totally free website that has all these great fantasy embedding tools. But we also host a five-day-a-week show for Sirius XM Radio. We're on from 11 to 1 Eastern every single day on Fantasy Sports Radio over at Sirius XM. So we do that. We have a podcast. We have a growing YouTube channel. One of the guys, our chief content officer, Jordan Fiegelman, Jordan sort of uh, earned his stripes, as you will, building a bunch of successful YouTube channels in the fantasy embedding community. He's a SEO expert. He's a YouTube expert. And so he's been helping build that strategy as well as we've seen really nice growth on our YouTube channel. We've started a discord, right? We're, um, we're, uh, we're doing that. We have a, uh, we do a four day a week show for Amazon for their new AMP platform. We're doing content for fanatics. They send out fantasy life content in one of their promotional emails. We have a fantasy life pick and play game on Facebook that almost 370,000 people are playing. So that's a partnership with Facebook as well. So we're just, we're trying to reach people in a bunch of different areas. And it's not just obviously about Twitter, but we have a growing TikTok channel. We have a growing, uh, Instagram handle, Kendall Valenzuela, who's not only the host of the show and one of our analysts, but she's also runs all of our social media. She's brilliant. It's a seven-person team uh, with about 16 freelancers or part-timers, I should say. Mm-hmm. I just, I get to be the, the, uh, the pretty face that smiles at you, but it's really, <laughs> um, it's really Elliot and the team that 
he's a symbol that, uh, you know, has really shown. And it's just great. And then the, the Fantasy Life app, of course, same thing. Just really good people running that. And listen, you, you mentioned Kendall. I remember she was with the fan in Denver, your, your, you know, your birthplace. Yeah. And, and I'm just fascinated by, as somebody who runs a digital company and has had to pivot through a number of things, I think there was a point a few years ago, so many groups were so reliant on social that you would almost forget that just going to a URL or sending someone an email is just as impactful as having a tweet out. But when all of a sudden those things start to change, if Facebook, you know, make sure that you can't reach as many people organically, or if Twitter changes things, you have to be able to adjust. Otherwise, if you don't adjust, your business is going to be in ruin. And kudos to you and your team because they've they've obviously done – you are in the right space. You've obviously built a brand yourself, which is going to bring some people in. But just watching the various ways you guys are promoting content and creating it for different places is really impressive to watch. Well, that's a huge compliment, Jason, given your experience and everything you've seen in the industry. So I really appreciate that. That means a great deal. We're – we're so flattered, you know, Morning Brew is one of our North Stars, that company. I think it's such an impressive company. They're basically a, a newsletter that's a, you know, a um, it's now a media company for millennials, you know, yeah. business for millennials, Wall Street Journal for millennials, however you want to say it. Um, and so Austin Reef, the co-founder and uh, CEO of Morning Brew is on our advisory board. We're so thrilled uh, and flattered by that. We have a really impressive uh, advisory board. And so when Austin came on, when when Adam Ryan, the former CEO of The Hustle, came on, when um, when uh, Chad Hurley, the co-founder and CEO of YouTube, uh, former CEO of YouTube, came on, when uh, Dave Nemitz, co-founder of Bleach Report, when he came on, like just the people that have said, I dig what you guys are doing. I'm willing to, you know, join your advisory board, lend my name. You know, it's it's really flattering and uh We're really enjoying it. Thank you for listening to the Jason Barrett Podcast. Please take a moment to subscribe to this show on iTunes, Spotify, iHeart, Amazon, YouTube, or wherever you consume podcasts. And to stay in touch with Jason, follow him on Twitter at SportsRadioPD or read his columns on BarrettSportsMedia.com.